this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the last few days. We are on Daniel 4. We've gotten through three chapters. It's been four days and about five hours, right? So we're doing great. Or, uh, we're moving fast. I've been thinking about the order of how we do things. We're going to go through Daniel 4 today and talk about God pursuing the man, Nebuchadnezzar. And um, I promise you that tomorrow we would do 7 and 8 together. Um, I've been kind of thinking about this overnight. And um, how many here are familiar with the prophecy of Daniel 9? Anybody? The 70 weeks prophecy? How many understand that prophecy? All right. I may, I haven't decided yet, so now I'm a little bit indecisive. I haven't decided yet. I may fly through seven and eight in like 10 minutes and then do nine. I have not decided yet. I'm thinking about it, but I wanted to see where you were at because Daniel 9 is considered the key to all Bible prophecy. So we, we may dive into that, not making any promises um, we'll see where the Lord takes me tonight and study. All right. So yesterday we talked about the fiery furnace, right? It seems like so long ago. I'm trying to remember. Was that yesterday? <laughs> so um, in about Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bendigo standing up with honor to a king. And we talked about the day before in Daniel 2 about the, the statue uh, of the man and Daniel honorably giving the, the, the interpretation of the vision and how, how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bendigo always put God first but still honored the position of the king. And we're going to see the fruit of that today. Now, like the rest of the days, we're going to go through it through um, a Jewish exegesis style. Um, what, can anybody name the first level of, um, of interpretation that we've been talking about this week? Peshat. Yeah, what is Peshat? The surface. The surface. Good. Second one. Remez. What is Remez? Hints. How many have found the Remez interesting this week? And I have to tell you this, I haven't scratched the surface of it yet. Like I was telling you the other day, I look at like Jewish ways of doing Remez, and I'm like, uh-uh, I, I can't go that deep yet. But we, we saw some pretty cool examples of Remez. Obviously, numbers are like the most obvious one. Um, letters, um, how to interpret words, looking at it as a 70-faceted diamond. Um, we talked about that a little bit. Um, yesterday, we talked about the word Torah being spelled every 50 letters through Genesis and Exodus. I mean, I mean that is, that's pretty cool stuff. It's just, a, it's just another confirmation that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was on these men that wrote their Bibles. So, Remez. What's the, what's the third level? Darash. What's Darash? Preaching, the inquiry, the sermon. Good. And the last one is? Sowed. Sowed is? What's the Holy Spirit saying? And I, I, really, I really hope that as you read your scriptures, that you ask God, give me ears to hear what you're saying to me through this word today. All right? It's so important. And these aren't levels that should just be in Bible teaching. 
they're actually, and the Jews actually said everything is spiritual. So we look around to see what's God saying around us. And we look at things on the surface. We look at things like, what are the hints that God's giving me? What am I learning from the situations am I going, I'm going through? When you go through tough times, what are you learning from that situation? And finally, what's the Holy Spirit giving you insight to? You got to really tune that ear to listen to what it's God saying. All right. I, I just wanted to, I wanted to throw something out there from yesterday. I, I missed this yesterday and I, and I, I thought, well, maybe I could just let it go, but I think it's actually worth saying. And then we'll go into chapter four. Yesterday, when we talked about Matt, Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bendigo in the fiery furnace, who was standing amongst them? Jesus. And, you know, we look at Jesus in terms of, he, actually, he was slain from the foundation of the world. First Peter says is that he actually um, came and he had to show us what it looked like so that we would understand what had already been done. Revelation 13, 8 says he's slain from the foundation of the world. So then after that, it says that after he was slain, he was forever, what? At the right hand of the Father. Seated. Right. So in the fiery furnace, we actually see Jesus, what among the three men? Standing. Standing in respect. There's another example of this in the New Testament. When the stoning of Stephen happened, he said, look, I look up into heaven and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. When you bend yourself towards God, Jesus actually stands in honor. So I just I just thought, you know, I, I really need to share that before we go in the floor. I, I missed that yesterday. I apologize. But um just remember that. Thanks for sharing. When we bend ourselves towards God. Jesus stands. All right. God from the Holy Spirit. Yes. All right. Where's my Bible at? Did anybody not get a handout for the week? It wasn't here? Anybody? Oh, we got one. Okay. Oh, I never got I didn't know you had them. So. Yeah. These are just, um, just quick guides for the book of Daniel. I was really... I was really upset because um, I knew I didn't have time to cover the whole book this week. And so I decided to write a summary. Um, so it can be a companion for you um, to actually go yeah, through the book yourself. I got a, one more here. Yeah, I do have two more. And I have my original too, but that's okay. I got, I got, I got a hard copy. Oh, here's another one too. All right. They're, they're not on the... Guide app, guide app, are they? Uh, Kendall, I believe, did put them on the app. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking. It doesn't look like it showed up. So I'll follow through with uh, the person who maintains the app. She told me this; it was there, but I'm not seeing it. So I'll follow through with that. We'll make sure they get there. All right, Daniel chapter four. If you want to turn there. And this morning, like the last two days, we're going to start with Peshat. We're going to do a lot of reading. I apologize for that. I know that can get dry. Um, but I just can't substitute the text. I can't summarize it better than the text does. So um, we are, we are going to do a lot of reading again today. Um, so please bear with me, and we'll, we'll look at the, the surface, and then we'll get into the remez, and then the inquiry, and then finally what's the Holy Spirit saying. 
All right, verse one. This is actually written from the viewpoint of Nebuchadnezzar, and I believe that Nebuchadnezzar actually did write this. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I love this because this is actually the opening of a testimony. And notice that, that Nebuchadnezzar is actually, is actually greeting them in a similar way to chapter 3. But notice the difference. Instead of, of worship me, it's peace. And in Aramaic, it's actually shalom, I believe how you say it. Instead of shalom, it's very similar. Aramaic, shalom. Hebrew, shalom. Thank you. Are um, very similar languages. And um, it means the same thing. We're going to get into shalom uh, more later in, later in the day today. So it's written as a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. But the difference is this. He's saying peace to you instead of worship me or burn. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. I feel like we've been here before. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel, at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God, and I told the dream before him. Now, before I read on, I want to... I want to get some, cover something that might be a catch point for you. Notice that he says, his name is Belteshazzar in accordance with the name of my God. Now, we know that this is a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar when he actually, I believe, he came to faith in Yahweh. But even though he came to faith in Yahweh, we still see this phrase, in accordance with the name of my God. Does anybody have any idea why, why he would say this? Okay, in this time period, there was a revelation that was just coming out through the prophet Ezekiel, who is actually um, a contemporary to Daniel. And the idea up to this point was that gods were regional. Okay, so Bel was the god of the region of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar is a Babylonian. We actually see some examples of this. Um, the first one is in, in one of the books of Kings. Is it, it might be on the screen. No, I didn't put it up there. In Kings, when um, Elisha has Naaman, the Syrian, come to him for healing. Everybody familiar with the story? He has leprosy. And remember Naaman, he, um, he has a slave from Israel. And you got to think about Syrian, Israel. Think about like Hamas. Naaman's like the terrorist. And he's like, his slave girl says, if you go to Israel, you, you could actually get healed there. So Naaman comes there and he gets healed. And then do you remember what Naaman's request was to Elisha? He said, give me two mule loads of dirt. You may understand why. 
It's that he said this because I will not because I will not bow myself to Ramon any longer. I will bow myself to your God. Is basically what he said. And he said and he was thinking of this because he thought if I don't have dirt from Israel, that regional God, I can't actually bow before him. And he said. Then he said, forgive me in this, that when my master leans his staff against me and I have to bow with him, forgive me of this sin. And then Elijah, Elijah said to him, go in peace and may the God of Israel be with you. Now, there's, there's a contrast here, isn't there, with, with Daniel chapter 3 and about bowing. How many know that that was a step in the right direction? Right? God honors that. You know, these, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were, they were a little further along in their journey. But I believe that God honors the steps that we take in the right direction. And at this time, he's like, yeah, God's a regional, and um, I'm a Babylonian, so the name of my God is Bel. But I'm going to worship Yahweh. Okay? Another, another example of um, regional, Ezekiel. Ezekiel went through the, um, one of the other captivities later of Daniel. Um, that after Daniel, he went to Babylon. And he went through the same treatment we talked about earlier that from your faces you don't want to hear about again. And he was a priest, and so he lost everything. He lost his wife. He lost his children to the rocks. He lost his manhood. He lost his God. He saw the temple destroyed. And he's on the river Shabar, and he has a vision of God. And for the first time in all of history, there was actually a revelation that God wasn't a region, but that God was actually everywhere. So when you see this phrase, I just wanted to stop and explain this. When you see this phrase that Nebuchadnezzar um, says, in accordance with my God, he's saying that because he's of the region of Bel. Does that make sense? Okay. So this is still his testimony. Don't let that be a hang-up for you. And, and maybe it might have been for some people, so I don't want to cover that. All right. Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretations. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field around found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw it in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with bands of iron and bronze. And I looked at that and wondered if that's a remez, but I'm not sure. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. and Let him graze with the beasts. On the, on the grass of the earth, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Circle that one right there, verse 16. We're going to come back to that. That's really important. And let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and a sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know 
that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Don't you love his attitude here? He's understanding from chapter 2 and chapter 3 that God is in Daniel, and he's not only um, the regional God, he's like the holy God is in Daniel. Now we have some symbolism going on here. A tree is a symbol of flourishing, and um, I'm just trying to look at the time, see where I'm at. I'm not going to read all these, but Psalm 1-3, Jeremiah 17-8, and Ezekiel 31-3 all give us examples of how like a tree planted by rivers of water shall not be um, destroyed. So it's like a tree is a symbol of flourishing in the Bible. Uh, verse 17 um, and 18 talks about um, the decision of the decree to watch sentence by the holy ones in order to know that the living may know that the most high rules. Proverbs 21-1 says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, he turns them wherever he wishes. Now, we often might think of ourselves, does God force us to do anything? The answer is no. And we're going to look at some, some examples later where God was in pursuit of men's hearts. But he didn't force them to make decisions. But I'll tell you this, he did know the outcome. He did know the outcome. And that's one of those things that's hard. Does God know the future? Yes. Does God control the future? No. He doesn't control us. He gives us, he gives us the option to love or not to love. You know, there can't be love without the freedom of choice. And that's one of those things about God I don't understand, and I don't think I'll understand until heaven. But God is always pursuing the heart of man. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished. For in a time and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, listen to this, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. I guess one of the key verses in Daniel chapter four. What do you hear when Daniel says this? Fear. Respect, Respect, honor. In in Hebrew, the word for um, glory, respect, honor is all the same. It's kabod, and it means weight. So Daniel has weight. And when I hear him say, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, you never see Daniel address King Nebuchadnezzar quite like this in an earlier chapter. You see a sense of a man who actually has fallen in love with this guy. He loves him with a heart that is actually true towards him. And that's amazing to me. Because this is the man who probably killed his parents. It's a good sermon there, isn't there? That you can actually, by honoring people, grow to love the people that have hurt you the most. There's a good example from the cross. Now I'm preaching again. But uh, that's okay. We'll come back and preach some more later. Um, think about Jesus. Jesus, he said, Father, forgive, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Not only did Jesus forgive them in word, he actually became the only hope for them. Think about that. Daniel 
Daniel is actually displaying the same type of love that Jesus gave us on the cross, that he is taking the man who is, has taken everything away from him, and yet he has become actually a symbol of hope for him in his life. We can live that way. We really can. And I got to stop preaching because we're not too derash yet. So it's got to, can't, um, can't, can't, can't help it. Another thing about this is when we talk about like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we should never talk to people about the loss of their eternal selves without a sense of sadness and compassion. Daniel's interpreting a dream as talking about a very deep humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. And you can hear the sadness. You can hear the loss. It's in, in the compassion in Daniel's voice. It's just so beautiful how he addresses him there. Verse 20. We've got to keep going. We'll come back. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the ground, bound with bands of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze the beasts of the field till seven times, circle seven, pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be the beasts of the fields, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, so you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. So Daniel's saying, King, humble yourself. We got a pride issue to deal with. And this is what's going to happen if you don't humble yourself. And I love this next verse in verse 27. Daniel gives the prophetic plea. All right. And if you look at all the prophets, it's almost always the same. He says this, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. What's the connection here? Righteousness is connected to generosity. Over 2,000 times in the Bible. According to Shane Willard, 2,106 to be exact. And we're going we're gonna to talk more about that in a few minutes. But Jesus, almost all of his sermons connect to this as well. We're going to look at a few of them later. Not, I don't know, almost all of them, but many of them. And we're going to look at a few examples in a few minutes. I just having trouble stopping myself here. Um, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the 12 months. He was, total 12 months. He was walking about the royal palace of Babylon, and the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Listen to that. Is this not mighty Babylon that I have built for my power and for my majesty? 
While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled to Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, you might want to circle this too in verse 33. Um, there's actually a prophetic significance here. Um, we'll come back to that. I think we will. Yes, we will. Okay, verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, so we, Nebuchadnezzar's writing, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All the works are truth, and all his ways are justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. You know, honoring others is actually the pathway to bringing honor to God. When we honor those in authority, it is actually the pathway to take the most vile, the most ruthless leader, and to bring him to the Lord. It's never condemning them. It's never putting them down. It's never name-calling them. And I don't think any Christians would ever do that, would they? Like on Facebook or anything? Never, right? Never. No, it's honoring our authorities is actually the pathway to bringing them to the Lord. Let it never be said of you that you go on Facebook, that you go in your group of people and you um, dishonor your authorities. It's okay to disagree with them, but it has to be done with respect. There is actually in a book, Meet the Rabbis, top three books I've ever read by Brad Young. If you want a great read, Meet the Rabbis by Brad Young. Um, there was actually these two rabbis around the time of Christ, and they were in complete contention with each other all the time. I mean, they, people thought they hated each other. And um, they, they had very different viewpoints about God on just about everything. Well, one of those rabbis over the course of time actually died. And the other rabbi just wept and wept and wept. And they said, why are you weeping? You guys were always in disagreement. He said, how then shall I learn now? So, you know, anybody that's mature, which I think most people that get to a position of leadership are, if you can disagree with respect and honor, then you'll have the honor of that person because you're disagreeing and respecting with honor and it actually can actually build you both up. So just a good principle to remember. All right, let's look at the remez. 
Well, I shouldn't tell you. What are the Hermes? Which one do you see? The different time spans. Okay, different time spans. Which one's particular? Oh, okay, seven. What's the number of seven represent? Years. Okay, yeah, it's a number of years in this vision. Good. And new, biblical numerology, what would it talk about? Purification. Yeah, God's perfect, God's perfect number. So it's saying that God is actually going to come. You know, Nebuchadnezzar represented himself in the last chapter by 60 by 6, number of man. He actually fell short. And God says that my kingdom's going to come over you, and that's going to actually maybe bring it more into a perfection would be a good way to put it. Or perfection is going to rule over the kingdom. Um, something, some kind of sim symbolism like that. Another one. 12 months later. There's actually a whole lot here. I'm going to bring it up so I have my notes. 12 months. How long is a prophetic year? It's 360 days. 360 days. Remember, the Jews are on a lunar calendar. 12 months, 30 days, 360. Okay? Whenever we look at Bible prophecy, think 360. I know it goes against all of our grain, but think 360. Now, there's, a, there's, a really, there's some really good things here because, you know, when you think of 12 months, we're thinking of a complete cycle, a complete prophetic cycle is one thing that's saying. The other thing is, is that in 360, the Babylonians had a mathematical system, Kendall, through Atlas Math. It was sexagismal. I probably said that wrong, or base 60. And from this, we actually derive the modern use of 60 seconds in a, in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, and 360 degrees in a circle. So in other words, when I came full circle. So there's some, there's some symbolism there. Also the tree. The tree is a symbol of flourishing. Those are our remez. Any other ones anybody sees that I might have missed? All right. Let's go into the Durash. The dew of heaven. Well, when you say water, I'm not sure. I might be stretching. When you think of water, the letter mem in Hebrew is symbolized by, by water, and it means power. So you could say the dew would be the power of heaven coming upon him. Maybe that might be or a mess. Maybe that's just the Holy Spirit thing. That maybe it's not particularly to this passage. Good. Maybe the uh, bands of iron and bronze around. Yeah, that's that's one that I looked at as well. I I don't know. I think that probably is a remez. I'm not pulling it. The only thing that I thought of was other kingdoms, but I'm not sure how to relate that. Right, because earlier talked about the kingdom of iron and bronze. That's right. Then iron would be Rome and bronze would be Greece. Yeah. One of the things that I found was interesting is that the prophecy against him is to leave the stump with its roots. Mm -hmm. And that's the same prophecy that is spoken against Israel, right? That the, right. The, root, the stump of Jesse would be cut off, but then a shoot would come from it. Um, and that's, so I don't know, that's the fact that the exile is represented by Israel being cut off as so. Mm -hmm. And now here we have the one that is one of the key figures in instituting the exile, and he's being cut off as so. That's really good. The stump in the ground, um, just for the recording, 
The stump in the ground is a good example of Hermes because Israel was, say, this root of Jesse be cut off and it would grow up as a tender shoot. And also the one who cut them off is being cut off and will be able to grow up again. That's really good. Any others? I love it. All right. Whoops, I went the Darash. All right, point number one. Nebuchadnezzar confessed his faith. When we look at chapter four of Daniel, we see a confession of faith of Nebuchadnezzar. He's giving his testimony. All right? So Nebuchadnezzar is testimony, is giving a testimony to the saving grace of God in his life. When we look at, when we think about confession, the first thing that comes to my mind is Romans 10, 9, and 10. Whoever confesses with their mouth, I better have it up there, that you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, this is a New Testament revelation, but I believe that, that there's an Old Testament revelation in this as well. That Nebuchadnezzar is realizing the authority and the power of God in his life and is actually turning his life in repentance and going towards God. I believe that someday we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Isn't that awesome? A man that's actually a symbol of Antichrist to come. He is actually going to be a person that we'll see in heaven because a man by the name of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and the Abednego would not bend under the weight of pressure, but would honor God first while still honoring the authority in their lives. There's a great, great, great sermon there. And I don't want to go there yet. And so we need to look at this and say, no one is beyond the reach of grace. Nebuchadnezzar, no matter how bad he was in the past, God was still in pursuit of him, and he loved him. And he, even in the very end of his life, he said, heaven rules, and gave his life fully committed to the Lord. Point two, Nebuchadnezzar changed his tomb. Chapter three, we see all nations bowing before him on the threat of death. In chapter 4, he addresses all nations and all of his leaders again, and he says, peace, shalom, in Aramaic, or shalom in Hebrew. And, you know, again, I, I rec I've talked about this earlier, that the Bible says that Christ was before the foundation of the world. The, the cross shows us a picture of how nice God always was. How many believe that? God, God's never been changed. Um, the cross is a picture of what God had already accomplished from us from the very foundations of the world. And then because of that, I believe that Isaiah 53 can actually apply. And it is certainly applies to us in the new co covenant. It says, surely has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, abused, Oh, I lost that. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
you know, we can actually, we can apply that to the work of God in our lives and the work of God in lives all throughout history. Literally, when it says the chastisement of peace was upon him, in Hebrew, it means correction of shalom. You see Nebuchadnezzar saying shalom instead of worship me or die. In the word shalom, it actually has a deeper meaning than just peace. Does anybody know what shalom means in Hebrew? Anybody? It means completeness. Shalom means completeness. And it's actually an aspect of bringing peace into your body, your soul, your mind, your spirit. Shalom actually encompasses every aspect of your being. When Nebuchadnezzar said shalom or shalem to the people, he was saying that you may have completeness in God, is what he was saying. There's a deeper meaning to the word peace. So in Isaiah 53, when it talks about what Christ did on the cross, he actually came into a place where he was bringing completeness, not only into our souls, but also our minds, our spirits, our bodies, that God would bring us into that perfection in him (coughs) and would be ultimately perfected when he returns or at our deaths. But he brought completeness to us. Point three, we're going we're gonna to move fast for a while, but then we're going we're gonna to get stuck for a little bit too on a couple of these. Point three, and I want to stay here for a little bit. Daniel honored Nebuchadnezzar's position. Richard Crisco has gave me one of the, my most favorite quotes of all time. He says, we don't honor people because they're honorable. We honor people because we're honorable. When, we, when Daniel came into the kingdom, he didn't honor Nebuchadnezzar because he was an honorable man. Was Nebuchadnezzar honorable? No, not even close, right? Think about what he did to Daniel's people. But Daniel was an honorable man, and he honored the king because he was honorable. So we don't honor people because they're honorable, We honor people because we're honorable. And that's by Richard Crisco. There's some good examples in the Bible about this. And we're not going to cover them all. So there's a lot of them. The first one comes from 1 Daniel chapter 1. Hannah, who was the the wife of Elkanah, she was actually the second wife of Elkanah. There's two wives involved. She wanted to get pregnant and have a son. And she was unable to actually conceive. And so she went to the temple of the Lord at Shiloh, where Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were ministering to God. But the thing was, is that Eli, was he an honorable man? Not really. Was Hophni and Phinehas honorable? Not even close. They They were drinking in the temple. They had prostitutes in the temple. And when they were coming... To, to give the sacrifice, they wouldn't take the part that was a portion for the priest. They're like, give us the best part that we want for ourselves. And they were cooking it wrong and they were just doing everything vile at that time in the eyes of God. So Hannah comes to the temple and she's praying, or the, not the temple, but the, the tenternacle actually. It's the tent of meeting. And she comes to this tent and she's praying to God in earnest for a son. 
And she was praying so earnestly that Eli came up to her and said, put your wine away. And Hannah um, answered like this, oh, my Lord, don't take your servant to be a wicked woman. I was just praying in earnest. And Eli changed his tone towards her and said, may the God of Israel grant your request. Hannah was there being honorable and good towards the Lord. And Eli didn't recognize it. Instead, he actually accused her of being a wicked, drunk woman. And in response to that accusation, Hannah says, my Lord, don't take your servant. Hear the humility to be a wicked woman. And as a result of that, Eli, being in the position of a priest, as wicked as he was, he had something to offer her. And that was the priestly blessing. He said, may the God of Israel grant you your request. When we honor authority, the authority has been put there by God. God says in the, in the New Testament that they are actually God's ministers for our good. And when Paul said this, his minister for his good was Nero. Think about that. Nero had a garden, by the way. And in order to light his garden, he would take Christians, which were his favorite target. He would take a pole with a pointy end. He would impale them through their rectum and set them up, cover them in tar, and set them on fire so his garden would never be dark. Think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying, actually, he's your minister. Put there for your good. You better honor him. Because they've been put there by God, and they actually have a blessing to release to you when you honor him. I don't know how that's even possible with a guy like Nero. But that's what Paul said. He said, another place, I think it's in Peter, he says, honor all men. Servants, be submissive to your masters, for this is fitting in the Lord. Just as Jesus was um, made himself a servant. Honor. Really tough thing to do, isn't it? So why do we honor people? Because they're honorable? No, we honor them because we're honorable. And by honoring our authority, they actually have a blessing that they can release to us. 1 Samuel 24. I'm going to actually turn there. Just because I got some stuff underlined I want to share with you. This is about David and Saul. Remember, David actually was, a, was anointed to be the king by Samuel. But who was the king at the time? Saul. So what position did that put that David in? He, he's, just, he's just another guy in the kingdom, right? He's a servant of Saul because Saul is in a spiritual authority over David at this time. And he was placed there by who? God. By God. That's right. So um, Saul realizes that David is being risen up to be the authority of the kingdom. And Saul gets jealous. And so in ver- chapter 24, I'm going to summarize um, Saul goes into the wilderness to seek after David with 3,000 men in order to kill him. And, and David's camped in the wilderness, and he learns about it. And, um, 
And they go and they spy on, on Saul and they see that the army's there and that Saul has gone into a cave to relieve himself. And David it was actually in the cave hiding and Saul didn't know it. And I, I believe this was a setup by God. And Saul's in there, he's relieving himself. I'm, I'm assuming he probably fell asleep or he just set his robe aside. And it says that David cut off the corner of his garment. Does anybody know why the corner of the garment was, was significant? That's right, the seat seat. Very good. The seat seat was the tassels. Remember in the Old Testament it says to affix tassels to the corner of your garment. The, co- the garment was called the tallit and, uh, or the kanaf. And it actually um, symbolized the presence of God. In the Old Covenant, there are 613 commands. And they're all based around 10 commands. And the 613 commands actually embrace the ways and the God and the presence of God. So when you have their seat seat on the corner of your tallit, it represents the presence or the anointing of God in your life. And so David goes up and he cuts off the corner. What's he, what's he doing symbolically? He's cutting off his anointing. And what is this, how does David respond to what he's done? He feels guilty, doesn't he? And, and it, it says in verse 5, it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid I should do this thing to my master. Look at the the humility here and the honor. The Lord's anointed. He had just cut off the the symbolism of his anointing. How dare I do it to the one the Lord has anointed. So David went back to Saul and he says that he, he, um, he came up to him, he bowed down, and he says, My Lord, the King. And it says, When Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. David was in repentance for what he had done. And as a result of this, he said, then he said this, Moreover, my father, yes, see the corner of your robe in your hand. Where I cut the corner of your robe. He's confessing to him, but he's calling him my father. This guy is trying to kill him. But David recognized the fact that he was also his authority and he had been placed there by God and it was his duty to honor him. And then, in the end of this, um, this encounter, Saul says this, Is this your voice? My son, David. And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded with me good, whereas I rewarded with you with evil. And then he said this, And I now I know indeed you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Saul had a blessing that he could give to David, even though he was an enemy. And it was only possible by David honoring the authority that had been placed there by God in his life. Likewise, Daniel, he honored the king, realizing that that authority had been placed there 
in his life. And if he honored it, that Nebuchadnezzar, as wicked as he was, had a blessing that he could actually put on him as a servant. Chapter 26, similar, similar instance, and that actually ends Saul chasing David. And it actually happens again. And again, there's actually another blessing that comes out from that. We don't need to read them. They're very similar accounts. Now, as I look back over the last four chapters, I think about how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually dealt with Nebuchadnezzar with honor. It, whenever, whenever there was an instance where like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to deal with standing up for their faith and putting their kingdom, the kingdom of God before the kingdom of men, they always did it in an honorable way, in a way that was gracious. Jesus taught us a similar way. And this is something that might be a little obscure. I'm guessing probably most of you have never heard this teaching. And I'm kind of throwing it in because I think it's really good. And um, it, it's a good example of how they had generosity in their hearts towards the king and that they honored the king no matter what his decree was. In G- Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus gives an example of how to handle conflict. He said, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the left. If somebody um, forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And if somebody asks for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Maybe familiar with those? You know, we talk about turning the other cheek. And when we think about that, we think of it as humility, right? Most of us? Right. Now, I need a, I need a volunteer. Somebody come on up. I don't care who it is. Come on up. So, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, which one's your right cheek? Point to it. All right, to slap them on the right cheek, what hand do I have to use? My left. Go like this, to slap them on the right cheek, I got to use my left hand. All right? That's very significant. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. So what cheek is he going to show me? So if I want to hit him again, what hand do I have to use? My right hand. This is a really, really basic way to handle conflict, but doing it honorably and generously. You have to understand Roman class system to understand this passage. In Roman class system, there were actually nine classes. And Galilean Jews were class eight. And when there was a conflict between somebody, um, you had to actually... And I know this is kind of a stretch in Daniel, but I just really wanted to share this because it's one of my favorite passages. <laughs> but it's about, it is about honor. Um, when, there's a, when there's a conflict, they actually had rules on how you would actually have a fist fight between different classes. So if I'm a class two Roman soldier and you're a class eight Galilean peasant, if I have a problem with you, I'm going to hit you with my left hand. And the reason is because sanitation wasn't very good there then. They didn't have toilet paper. And so when you cleaned yourself, you had like two options. You could use moss or three options. You could use the Roman dirty sponge, which is a good teaching on the cross. Or you um, would use your left hand to clean yourself, which is really disgusting. So when you look at somebody like this, and if you're a class eight peasant, I'm a Roman two soldier, uh, class two Roman soldier, I'm going to use my poopy hand to slap you. All right? 
Jesus is saying, um, don't hit him back, but turn the other cheek and actually force him to, to um, be in conflict with you as an equal. So not only did I, um, I say, no, you're not going to treat me that way. I did it in a way that was honorable towards him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did the same thing. They said, King, you know, that's okay, but we're not going to worship your God. There was, no, there was no yelling. There was no shouting. There was no hurtful words. It was honorable, but it stood in a way that says, no, you're, you're not going to treat me that way. It's another, thanks, that's good. Another, the other one is Miles. In, in ancient Israel, um, a Roman soldier could force a class eight peasant to carry his pack a mile, but he couldn't do two. And he'd actually be court-martialed and docked a day's wages because they wanted him to go back and earn more money so they could pay more taxes, 86% taxation. And so Jesus is saying, um, if you want to stop this practice, if you want to, if you want to, but treat him honorably still, um, when you get to the first mile marker, take off and do the second mile because that Roman soldier is actually going to be docked a day's page and court-martialed. It's a good way to handle it. The third one, you have to understand Jewish law. Um, if you, if you um, go into debt, and since they were at 86% taxation, they were losing their land. Um, there was wealthy Jews in Jerusalem that were taking that land. And they could, for a debt, they could offer their tunic and pledge. In um, Jewish law, it wasn't actually dishonorable to be naked in public, but it was dishonorable to see nakedness. And so Jesus is saying this, and if they ask for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. In other words, get naked, because by doing so, you'll actually, you'll actually, um, uh, this, it actually brings them in dishonor by your generosity. So just, just another side note about how to show honor, but also remain, retain your dignity. So just thought that would be kind of a fun one, throw in there. <laughs> All right, point four. Daniel offers a prophetic plea. And um, Daniel 4, what verse are we in? One of them. One, I think it's 19. I'm getting a little bit tired. <laughs> you can see I'm slowing down a little bit. Uh, oh, 27. It says, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. I said this earlier, 2,106 times, righteousness is tied to generosity. In Hebrew, righteousness um, is the word sadak. Can we say that? Sadak. This is a really important word in Hebrew. And when we look at the word righteousness, Sadak, I'm going to see if I can spell it. It's um, Sadi, Dalit, Yod, Koth. And we look at Sadi as the desire of Dalit, doorway. This desire of your heart opens the doorway to Yod is deeds, to the deeds. Koth is, I'm trying to do this with memory, the back of the head in humility. The desire of your heart opens the doorway to doing your deeds in humility. It's righteousness. When you look at 
Generosity is the same word, tzedakah, with a H, with a hey. So you take that, that phrase and you add revealed to it. Hey is symbolized by a window. So righteousness revealed is generosity, always in the Bible. So the desire of your heart opens the doorway for your deeds being done in secret and generosity reveals your heart. The word letter hey that we find at the, the end that means revealed is also the letter of grace. So in generosity, you're showing grace to those in need. So Daniel says this to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, perhaps the Lord will lengthen your days if you show righteousness to the poor. It's always connected. The rabbis would actually say this, and I, I don't know what to do with this statement. I think it's interesting. It says anyone can find God that's generous without any expectation in return. And, you know, like I, I think, but I'm like, but yeah, but the Bible says no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Yes, it does. But perhaps coming to Jesus Christ is this, and is that we realize the generosity of Christ and that we become so generous towards others that, that we, we love people so, so much as Jesus did that everything we do is never about ourselves. And that is the nature of Jesus. The nature of Jesus is that is complete selflessness. So as we get closer to becoming righteous, righteousness actually becomes complete selflessness, which is taking on the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. So maybe that's what the rabbis were saying. I don't know. In the Bible, it gives us a progression of how a person can be saved. You know, in the Old Testament, we start with Abraham. It's like sacrifice your kids. That's the culture he came out of. It says sacrifice your kids and cut yourself to get rain. Abraham gets this divine revelation. Um, let's not sacrifice kids anymore. Let's um, sacrifice the animals. And he's got this other revelation. Let's not call, cut ourselves infinite times. Let's cut ourselves once and call it done. It's a great inspiration. Moses gets this new revelation. Let's not kill infinite animals. Let's kill one per family per year so our people don't starve and that we have enough food, right? Um, Micah said, you know, God's not actually interested in animals. And I think this is the revelation of the cross. He said, um, what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. I think that got him killed. That was heresy. But it is actually in the law. Even in the law, it says, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quoted it. It's from Leviticus. But when it says, you know, don't worry about sacrifice. Just love people. Walk humbly with your God. Do justly. Love mercy. Jesus put it this way. You know, the whole command, son of this, love God and love people. Paul said it's even actually simpler than that. I don't know how you can get simpler than Jesus, but Paul did it. He said, actually, the whole law is just summed up in loving your neighbor. And we can, we can sum up the whole law in loving our neighbor because when we love people the way that Jesus did, we're actually loving God because God's breath is in them. When God created man, he breathed into us. We call it the Ruha, the spirit of God in us. When we can love people without any expectation of return, 
and love people the way that God sees them, we are actually loving God because God's breath is in them. Every breath that we take in, we are literally taking in the breath of God. Every time we breathe in and out to speak, whether it's praise to God or actually to curse Him, we have to do with the breath of God. I love this teaching. When when God when God gave Moses his name, Yud Hey Vav Hey, the the letters Yud Hey Vav Hey make no sense in Hebrew phonetically. It's just like blah, 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 right? And the rabbis would always try to say, what does Yud Hey Vav Hey actually mean? And what they said is that it sounds like breathing. So if we curse God or praise God, we do it all by the name of Yud Hey Vav Hey. We do it by his breath and by his name. So when you go out and you come encounter with people and you love on people and you're generous to people, let the breath of your mouth always do it in a way that edifies you, hey, Bob, hey, because with his breath only can we speak. Because we always, with every breath, we say his name. I wasn't going to go there. I don't know where that came from. That was fun. (laughs) So in other words, generosity reveals which kingdom your heart is in. So Daniel's saying in Nebuchadnezzar, do righteousness and show generosity to the poor. He's saying, bring your kingdom from the kingdom of men and put it in the kingdom of God. Because there's nothing like money that will determine where your heart is. I don't know anything else on earth. Your checkbook will tell you where your heart is, what kingdom you are actually functioning out of. So Daniel's like, you want to prolong your days, do justly, serve the poor. Jesus, actually, we see this throughout the whole New Testament. We look at Romans 10, 9, and 10 again. Um, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. Um, Jesus, Jesus gives us a lot of ways to do that. You know, when you think about somebody being saved, our method is we got to go down to the altar and say the magic prayer that was invented in the 1800s. But um, that's a really good method. I'm not downing it at all. But there's also, it's not just a magic prayer. It's a heart change. And Jesus often demonstrates his heart change in the way people show generosity. Matthew chapter 19 says that there was this rich man. And he came up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what must I do to be saved? And he says, keep the commandments. You know, love the Lord your God, honor your father and mother, don't steal. And he said, love your neighbor, which is actually not in the 10, but it summarizes the 10. And he says, well, good teacher, I, I kept all these from my, my, my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said this, Go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus wasn't looking for someone to check off the commandments and that they had that they had done them to the satisfaction of their mind. Jesus was looking for somebody that kept the commandments, that had done them to the satisfaction of the heart and that he literally um, brought himself be fully committed to God in every aspect of his life. In this case, it was his finances. It says the man walked away sad because he had great wealth. 
Tradition tells us that later he actually did come to Christ. Luke 12 says there was this man and he had a really great harvest. So he decided to go build bigger barns. And what did the Lord say? He said, this very night, your life will be required of you. It's the only time in the Bible where Jesus says, really, that's your answer? I'm going to kill you actually tonight. Because your response to this life is, how can I be comfortable for the rest of my life with no regard to others? Five minutes. Okay, thank you. Another example. In uh, Matthew chapter 6, your eye being good is the light of the, your eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is good, then your whole body is, is good. If your eye is dark, then your whole body will be dark. What's the context? It's building up treasures in heaven. So that good eye and evil eye is all in context of whether you're generous or not generous. Another example from Luke 16, there was a rich man. And um, this rich man, he um, had a whole lot. And there was this guy named Lazarus who sat at his gate and just longed for the crumbs from his table. It says that the rich man, he actually um, died and he went to hell. And then this Lazarus, he died and he goes to heaven. And the rich man says, um, can, you just, can you just have him bring me a drop of water? And he says, there's a great chasm between us. And besides, when on the earth, you had everything you needed and he sat at your gates longing for one crumb and you gave him nothing. So now he is comforted and now you are in torment in the pits of hell. Generosity. Here's my favorite. Luke 3. <laughs> Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. By the way, he's calling them children of snake, of Satan. <laughs> For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, what? shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, give to the one who has none. That's what that rant was about? Really? And um, he who has food, do likewise. And the tax collector said, what shall we do? Collect no more than was appointed. Soldiers asked, what should we do? Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. And then they asked themselves, is this the Christ? It's a really interesting thing. That whole rant was about being righteous by giving to the poor. So when Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, be righteous by giving to the poor, he's actually giving the prophetic plea that righteousness, or let's say this way, the sadak do sadaka, right? Sadak do sadaka. All right, we're not gonna we're gonna keep moving. We're almost we gotta get done. My last point is this: God pursues the man. He always pursues the man with love. In Daniel two forty seven, God was pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. 
He was pursuing him in a dream. And Daniel, who was obedient to God and was listening to what God said, as a result, Nebuchadnezzar says this. And this is a review. He said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you can reveal the secret. We have one step. He's a God that can reveal secrets. In chapter 3, the demonstration of more believers says this. I'm going to put it up there. The king answered Daniel. Oops, wrong one. Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yield their bodies, that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. I make a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything amiss, the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, should be cut into pieces and their houses be made into an ash heap, because there is no other god that can deliver. So we have another god that can deliver. And I'm, I'm going on one minute, I just need about four more and I'll be finished here. And finally, in Daniel chapter 4, we see, we see this. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. His kingdom is everlasting. His dominion from generation to generation. It says, I lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised him and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And I'm going to skip up ahead and it says this. Um, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride he's able to put down. Because of the honor that these men gave to Nebuchadnezzar, but honored God first, Nebuchadnezzar is a man who was actually brought to the Lord. God was pursuing him with everything he had. Our job is not to clean people up. Our job is to love them, honor them, and put God first. Because when we honor, we don't honor people because they're honorable. We honor them because we're honorable. It says that in the, uh, Daniel chapter 7, and I'll give you this. It says that he was the beast that was represented by the lion with wings. And um, lion with wings. And um, hold on a second. <laughs> I don't have it in my head. Okay, he had eagle's wings, and it says that his wings were plucked off, and he was given the heart of a man. Out of all the beasts, Nebuchadnezzar, he was, God saw him as a beast, but because of the testimony of a man, because of the example of a man, it says this beast, his beastly image was plucked off, and he was given a man's heart. So beautiful. I want to challenge you in this, and we can use this as our sowed. I want you to ask, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? 
I'm going to give you this, that no one is beyond his reach. And I'm going to challenge you to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Because God wants to use you in the lives of people. And I want to just close with this little story and then a song. We'll be done at 11.50 with five minutes over. Sorry, I apologize. If you need to go, you can go. Um, a couple months ago, we were driving down the road on our way to Cairo. And we saw a young girl by the road. And Rochelle was driving. And the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, she said, that girl is running away from home. I told Rochelle, turn the car around, go back right now. That girl's running away. And so we went back and um, we said, are you, are you okay? Do you need help? It was kind of winter still. And she's, she's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm like, do you need a phone to call somebody? No, no I'm fine. And she goes, yeah, I want to use your cell phone. Like, okay. And I said, are you sure you're okay? It looks to me like you're running away. And she just starts weeping. Just starts weeping. And she says, yes, I'm running away. My parents don't understand me. And by the Holy Spirit, I heard in my mind that those parents love that little girl. She's a teenager. And I said, you know, I'm a dad of three daughters. And as a dad, I wanted to tell you, you need to go home. And just built into her life. And that time she wept. And I said, did you need a ride? She's like, no. And then her mom came around the corner looking for her. And I go, are you going to be okay? She's like, yeah, you know what to do, yes. It's those circumstances that come into our lives that we can actually build in the people's lives. Another example, real quick, I just got to give one more. I was in Chicago O'Hare Airport. And um, I don't know if you've been in O'Hare. It's huge. And it's people all the wall. And I go around, I like to talk to people. I just like to talk, as you probably noticed. And I saw a man... And I felt like I need to talk to that guy. And the Lord, this is the clearest word from the Lord I've ever received. And the Lord said, you need to talk to him, but not now. He will sit by you on your plane. I'm like, okay. <laughs> There's all these terminals, hundreds of airplanes. Plane has hundreds of people, assigned seats. So I get on my plane. Sure enough, he's sitting next to my seat. So I sit down. And I looked on his lap, and he has a couple books, and they're about how all religions lead to God. We have a great starting point. And um, so I asked him what he's reading, just created some small talk. And in the end of our conversation, and he was a man who grew up in the church and was studying to be a doctor. He said, I said, I asked him this. I said, if, if you believe that all religions lead to God and that Jesus is a good teacher, what about this? In John 14, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If all religions lead to God, that would make Jesus, who you consider good, to be a liar. And he said, he stopped. He was like, that's a really good point. That was it. But I don't know where it went from there. It does not matter. But all I know is that the Lord said in the terminal that, see that guy you got to talk to? Um, he's going to sit by you on your plane. There was a reason for that conversation. So I want to challenge you in this. Listen to what God is saying and honor the people around you because you don't know what that's going to lead to. Now, Daniel probably never dreamed that Nebuchadnezzar would honor his God. But because, Nebuch because Daniel did what was right, 
honored God, honored his king, Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed God as the most high God. I want to leave you with a song. My wife wrote this years ago, and um, it's based on Song of Solomon, God going over the mountains to pursue his love for you. And you guys have like two more minutes. if, If you need to leave, it's okay. She wrote the song after an experience. Okay, if I share this, Rochelle? Yeah, I've already started, so I guess I'm not good. She was listening to a song by Jesus Culture, and it's by the same, the same name, Over the Mountains. And Ella, who was five, right? Four? Three or four years old, comes into the room, and she's just playing. Rochelle is folding laundry, listening to the song. She goes, Mom, stop what you're doing. This is a song that you have to raise your hands to. And Rochelle went something like, like this. Like, okay, here you go. And Ella goes, no, 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 mama, not like that. Um, higher. She goes like this. She's like, no, not there. She takes her arm, brings it over, and says, right there. She goes, now you're touching Jesus. And Rochelle is like, okay. And she goes, Okay, mom, take your hands off Jesus. So she goes, okay, now put your hand back on Jesus. No, not there, not there, right there. And she said, now put your hand on your heart. Said, now Jesus is touching your heart. And after this, she wrote this song about God going over the mountains and through the valleys and over the sea to pursue his love for us. So, here's one of her songs.